Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Asset Allocation Report for June 20th, 2022. It's time for the Confluence Mid-Year Geopolitical Outlook, a look at world events likely to drive markets for the rest of the year and and how investments might be aligned to uh, accommodate these dominant trends. Joining us today are Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady and Market Strategist Patrick Theron Hernandez. Well, Bill and Patrick, you identify seven major events in your report and analyze the short, medium, and long-term impacts of each. Before we discuss these, I'm struck that overall, the outlook to me appears quite gloomy and much more treacherous than we have experienced in the recent past. Do you agree? Well, I'll start off, Phil. There's always something to worry about in the world. I had a boss once who used to read my geopolitical reports, and after a while he came into my office and said how, you know, I just feel more anxious these days. But the world order is breaking down. Uh, We've been warning about this for a while, but now that it's happening, I have to say it is disconcerting. And from my perspective, you know, a key part of our job is to identify risks, make sure our readers know about those risks, and work hard to manage those risks in our portfolios. So we always talk a lot about the big geopolitical risks that we see. Like Bill mentioned, many of the increasing risks that we describe are the natural result of a theme we've been pushing for more than a decade now. Our trademark thesis is that the United States is pulling back from its traditional role as global hegemon as U.S. voters lose sight of all the benefits they gain from being the dominant power, and as they focus more on the costs involved in playing that role. As the U.S. pulls back, it opens up opportunities for challengers and adventurers like Russian President Putin in his invasion of Ukraine. But of course, some of today's risks are also idiosyncratic developments such as the pandemic and climate issues. Do you think investors are already becoming more cautious, but not nearly as cautious as they're likely to become. Well, there's mixed evidence that investors have become more cautious. For example, if you look at the 12-week average of flows into equity mutual funds and ETFs, there's only been three negative weeks so far this year. Now, these three events have occurred in the past two months, so that would signal perhaps some growing caution, but not a wholesale fleeing of risk assets. That being said, retail money market fund levels are quite elevated at just over $1.4 trillion. In in 2018, just, just a few years ago, they were about a trillion. So there is an element of caution there, I suppose. But so far, we haven't seen an aggressive liquidation of risk assets. I think I feel a little more certain that people are becoming more cautious. Although risk markets have corrected in a relatively orderly fashion and fund flows haven't been disastrous, I think it's notable that those declines have come despite all the excess liquidity that's still out there from the fiscal and monetary stimulus following the pandemic. And besides, by some measures, consumer sentiment is now even worse than it got when the housing bubble burst in 2007 and 2008. So bottom line, from an investment standpoint, do you think investors still have room to make profitable decisions, not only to protect assets, but to possibly build them? Well, yes, but getting there will require a different asset allocation than what worked before. 
In a low interest rate, low inflation, low growth environment, long duration assets tend to outperform. What would these be? Well, long duration bonds and growth stocks. In a higher inflation, higher interest rate world, investors will need to own more short duration assets, shorter term bonds, commodities, value stocks, and dividend stocks. The new world will also likely have shorter business cycles, which means that buy and hold investing will be challenging. And beyond adjusting asset allocation strategy, investors are going to probably see different opportunities and risks for certain industries. For example, the Russia-Ukraine war has ushered in what's likely to be a long period of increasing defense budgets around the world, if not an outright arms race. That probably creates an opportunity in defense stocks and even in tech stocks that have some connection with defense. Another possible opportunity is in commodities, like Bill mentioned, uh, where prices are likely to keep rising in response to factors like wartime supply disruptions, climate issues, underinvestment, geopolitical rivalry, and central banks potentially shifting their reserves away from currencies and gold toward other materials. Well, Bill and Patrick, in your mid-year report, you rank the challenges in numerical order in terms of impact. These are issues that you've both written about in recent months. Number one is the Ukraine war, which is causing energy, food shortages, greater inflation, and threatens to further divide nations on many levels. Given these challenges, what are the chances of a negotiated settlement? I'll start this one off. I actually don't see an unconditional surrender or even a conditional surrender at all. The most likely outcome is a negotiated settlement, but I don't think it'll come anytime soon. In my view, the Russian and Ukrainian leaders both have too much riding on the war's outcome for a, from a political standpoint. They still think the balance of power is in their favor, and they still distrust the other side. Admittedly, some of the Western allies are putting pressure on Ukrainian President Zelensky Zelensky to negotiate, but I don't think he'll cave very soon. I think the war will continue for some time, along with all its risks and economic consequences, until both sides are exhausted enough to start talking. You know, there's an old adage about forecasting, which says you should offer a price or a time, but not both. We, we almost certainly will have a negotiated settlement. It's hard to conceive of a nuclear power accepting total defeat, and I'm not sure that Russia is prepared to fully accept the cost of controlling all of Ukraine. Now, it is possible that Russia could simply decide it's done in Ukraine like we did in Afghanistan, but that outcome is highly unlikely since Ukraine is crucially important to Russia's imperial designs. So I would say at some point there'll almost certainly be a negotiated settlement, but I agree with Patrick. I don't see it coming anytime soon. When it does come, would a negotiated settlement be a powerful stimulant to equity markets? Yeah, I think a settlement would get a would give a boost to the stock market, but it may not be a cure-all. After a short time, I, I think investors would focus again on problems like still high inflation, supply shortages related to the pandemic, especially in China, and, and rising interest rates. If it occurred soon... Yes, I would agree it would be bullish, but that might be tempered by how long sanctions continue after the cessation of hostilities. If Vladimir Putin remains in office when the settlement occurs, it, it won't be bullish at all, probably, because sanctions will likely remain. On the other hand, if Putin leaves as part of the settlement, sanctions might be lifted quickly as a good faith measure. Still, it's important to realize that this war changes things. We won't return to status quo antebellum. 
As you write in your report, the Ukraine war may have stolen the spotlight from the competition with China for world economic dominance, but China remains a very serious concern. Is there room left to cooperate with China on some of the key issues, or are we on a steady downward spiral? Other than short-term tactical compromises, I don't see a fundamental cooling of tensions between the U.S. and China or any long-lasting agreement to just live together. This is a fundamental competition, Thucydides' trap, in which a hegemon, the U.S., is confronted with a rising power, China, uh, that wants to displace it. What's at stake is global leadership and dominance, and while many populists may be willing to give that up, traditionalist U.S. leaders still show every sign of wanting to defend it, while Chinese leaders show every sign of wanting to grab it. I think U.S.-China tensions are here to stay and, and even worsen. Personally, I think there may be room for compromise, but Beijing so far, in my opinion, has shown little interest. What are the key challenges for China's leader, and, and how might he respond to them? Well, even though China has grown and strengthened immensely over the last two decades, it's important to remember that its trajectory is now moderating. Economic growth is slowing, uh, not just because the economy is maturing, but also because of the government's own mistakes. China is also facing problems like environmental degradation, slowing population growth and population aging, and high debt. President Xi has talked up the... Uh, the idea of reorienting China's economy toward internal consumption and innovation, but the reality is that he's following China's decades-long strategy of growing external trade and expansion. The problem is that China's finding it harder and harder to do that. Xi now wants to consolidate his power to be in a better position to survive the coming challenges. Yeah, to sum up what Patrick outlined, slowing growth, weak demographics, excessive debt, overinvestment, and deeply disillusioned youth are all serious problems from China. The imperialist option is ex exhibited by the Belt and Road Project as one response. That addresses the overinvestment problem, perhaps the debt one too, but the demographics isn't easily solved without immigration. One more question on China, Bill and Patrick. Would you say China is in a more vulnerable economic state right now than the U.S. is? Personally, I wouldn't just say vulnerable. I, I would say precarious. As we mentioned a moment ago, China's economic growth is facing a slowdown from factors like economic maturing, poor demographics, rising debt, trade protectionism from the U.S., you name it. But on top of it, I think China's shooting itself in the foot with President Xi's clampdown on big, powerful industries like housing and high technology, and with his strict zero-COVID policies. With mistakes like these, Chinese economic growth could slow more than most people think possible, creating big social and political risks for Xi. Well, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. China's trying to make the transition from a high-growth, high-exporting power to a lower-growth domestic consumption power. Every nation that enjoyed a development boon has to make this transition in some form or another. Germany's done it through colonization, otherwise known as the Eurozone. Japan faced this problem in the late 80s, and its resolution to it has been 30 years of stagnation. When the U.S. dealt with this transition, we had the Great Depression. What China is facing is really, really hard, and none of its choices are attractive.
Well, we spent a lot of time on the top two issues that you're looking at. We don't want to ignore the others. And your third major issue is the global food shortage, which is a result to a great extent of the effects of the Ukraine war. As we've seen in the past, food shortages can can topple governments. Which countries are most vulnerable and what's the potential impact on investors? Well, I would rate the North African nations, especially Egypt, as particularly vulnerable. In addition, the Central Asian nations, the so-called stands, are facing an enormous food deficit. Now, interestingly enough, both Russia and China have an incentive to feed the Central Asian nations because instability would complicate both of their situations. It is believed, although it can't be proven, that China is sitting on large stockpiles of grain. And Russia has grain that it can't sell to global markets. Russia could face problems if the stands were to become unstable, but the stands governments would likely be cautious about becoming dependent upon either power. And I agree. I I think North Africa in particular, but even the whole of Africa will face big problems with food price inflation, shortages, hunger, and even famine in the coming months. Number four on the list is weather disruptions. We've always had these every year. But why could weather disruptions have a greater impact now? Well, Phil, you you are correct. There are weather events every year. But because world commodity trade patterns are being upended due to the Ukraine war, regular flows are no longer functioning well and import-dependent nations are desperately trying to secure supplies from new sources. The one mentioned in this report is the U.S. LNG exports to Europe. U.S. traders are well-schooled in hurricane disruptions to natural gas. But the EU isn't used to worrying about them, and seeing EU natural gas prices become sensitive to Gulf of Mexico weather will be a change. And it goes beyond just energy. Given tight grain supplies, drought could reduce production. And low water levels on rivers, a consequence of inadequate rain, could hamper logistics even if the crop turns out to be fine. And heaven help us if we have an unusually cold winter. And I think another broader issue is that extreme weather events and weather variability seem to be getting worse. Basically, that's another way of saying that the weather is producing more risk than before. Moving on to issue number five, Latin American politics. Obviously, we don't have time to discuss particular countries in any detail, but overall, is it possible and even likely that political changes in Latin America will further disrupt world supplies of key natural resources? Yeah, politics is the the big issue that we see in Latin America in the coming months. We have an untried, unpredictable new leader in Colombia, which is both a major commodity producer and a key U.S. ally. In October, it looks like commodity giant Brazil will bring back the leftist firebrand Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, otherwise known as simply Lula. Although Lula presided over good economic growth and strong markets in his prior two terms, in office from 2003 to 2010, there's a risk that his free spending policies and market interventions may be more radical or cause more problems this time. And finally, Chile, which is a giant producer of key minerals like copper, will vote in September on a new constitution that would shift the country away from free markets and capitalism. So in other words, three major Latin American commodity producers could be undermining their investment climate and discouraging new commodity supplies within the coming months. 
Well, then let's move on to number six on the list, U.S. politics and the impact of the midterms. Do you think ongoing support for Ukraine may erode as a result of election season and election results? Well, well, it could. Uh, J.D. Vance, the GOP candidate for the Ohio Senate seat, openly said he doesn't care what happens in Ukraine. In general, populists, both on the left and right, have tended toward isolationism. Now, this position makes sense for them because the burden of war often falls more heavily on the less affluent. But within the GOP, there is a long strain of elite isolationism. Senator Taft, also from Ohio, was the Senate Majority Leader in the early 1950s. He opposed the U.S. joining NATO and only reluctantly supported the Marshall Plan. What we are doing in Ukraine is consistent with a globalist hegemonic policy, and there will be opposition to that posture among some parts of the GOP. Could the elections culminate in a U.S. Congress even less likely, if that's possible, to agree on major issues? Almost certainly. In general, the party holding the White House usually loses seats at the midterm. History shows that when a president has low approval ratings, his party loses a lot. I am expecting up to a 70-seat loss for the Democrats. Such a loss will embolden the GOP and likely expose divisions within their own party. So I don't expect much to get done uh, after November. Finally, Bill and Patrick, you list Fed policy and the dollar as a major mid-year issue. Why is dollar strength likely to remain high and what's the likely world impact? The Federal Reserve is conducting a monetary policy that is demonstrably more hawkish than other G10 nations. This is giving the dollar a boost, even though by other measures, the dollar is deeply overvalued. Until the FOMC blinks, the dollar should continue to appreciate. History shows that when the dollar is strong, it tends to pressure emerging market economies. The Mexican debt default and the Asian economic crisis were all events triggered in part by dollar strength, and thus risks are elevated under these conditions. And in terms of the global impact, one that I'm watching closely is the possibility that the strong dollar will make it too hard for some emerging market countries to service their debts. In the past, rising global interest rates and a strong dollar have been a toxic mix for many less developed countries. In the coming months, it would not be a surprise to see more countries default, as Sri Lanka already has. And even without such defaults, a, a strong dollar will tend to push up consumer price inflation in countries that import from the U.S. and encourage their central banks to hike interest rates as well. Well, we began our discussion by stating that even with all these problems, opportunities for investors still exist. How are confluence model portfolios positioned to withstand all the storms that may come? Well, the first thing we've done is we've shortened duration and fixed income and leaning into treasuries and away from credit. We've also reduced our equity exposure and less risk-tolerant portfolios. We've overweighted defensive industries and the defense industry, and uh, we've added commodities. And I would simply add that within our domestic stock allocations, we've also put more emphasis on value-oriented defensive sectors like healthcare and consumer staples. In a word, we've started to ratchet down risk really across our various strategies. 
Thank you, Bill and Patrick. And to our listeners, if you want a more detailed look at the Mid-Year Confluence Geopolitical Outlook, we do recommend the written report. It's available by accessing confluenceinvestment.com and clicking on the bi-weekly geopolitical report tab on your right near the top of the page. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. And this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.